Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Hope Brooklyn Church Online. Um, happy last Sunday of August 2020. 2020 is just marching on. Uh, my name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you so much for being with us. You're coming in at a really exciting time uh, in our church calendar and church life. For those who missed last week, uh, one, you can find all of our past sermons um, and, and past worship experiences um, of this year on YouTube. So go to our YouTube, subscribe it, subscribe to it, like it, all the things there digitally. But also, if you missed last week, uh, you missed a really big announcement. In two Sundays, two Sundays, Sunday, September 13th, we are going to be entering into phase one for us of beginning the process of regathering as a community. And what that means is we are going to be coming to you on Sunday morning, 11 a.m., live. I know it feels like I'm talking to you, we're having a conversation right now, but I am actually not live. Right now at this moment, I am sitting in my sweatpants, eating Captain Crunch, watching myself talk about sitting in sweatpants, eating Captain Crunch. I don't know what just happened there. Go with it. Um, but in two Sundays, Sunday, September 13th, that will not be the case. We will be live. We'll be as a staff in one spot doing worship, uh, sermon, communion, all together at one moment. So that's phase one, because what we're doing is we're gonna take back the 11 a.m. hour. Um, it's been this nice reprieve where people can tune in at all times of the day on Sunday or even throughout the week. We want to start gathering back at a singular time. Guys, uh, this next suggestion comes with a lot of oomph from me. Do not show up to that Sunday alone. Don't tune in alone. Invite a friend over. Invite someone from your quarantine bubble um, to, to tune in with you, to share breakfast with you, someone that you trust. Why? Because church is not Netflix. We are not entertainment. And one of the major ills of American Christianity is that it's viewed as this thing I consume, as this thing God entertains me. We go to different churches when the preacher is no longer entertaining we go to different churches when the worship isn't entertaining. That is fundamentally to misunderstand who we are. Because in this space, and granted, we're so lucky and blessed to have technology, but in this space, we are meeting and communing with the living God and with one another. We are being challenged. We're being provoked. We're being rebuked. We're being confronted by things within us. And that requires, I don't know if you've ever been confronted in a way that like, stuff within you is revealed and it's painful and it's messy. That requires friends. That requires um, brothers and sisters in the language of, of uh, scripture to do that with. So I would challenge you. I would strongly, strongly, obviously I can't, you know, check in on everyone's apartment, but I would strongly, strongly impress upon you. Don't tune in alone. Your discipleship depends on it. Plus, this season, 2020 has been bonkers. We all know it. That, that just doesn't even need to be said. And yet it's in moments like this, as we're talking about in our series, The Fog, where God actually has a greater opportunity to get through to us than we've ever known. Your discipleship has such potential to encounter the living God. So take a step, take a step of risk, take a step of faith. And your friends who maybe... Um, don't know what they think about God, aren't so sure about the Christian story, you'd be shocked how open our friends are right now to try anything, to, to actually show up and give it, 
give God an opportunity to speak back. So I would challenge you, go ahead and start thinking about who you want to invite. You and a couple friends from Hope Brooklyn, come together. We'll have tons more information about other aspects of tables and small groups and stuff like that. Um, but uh, two Sundays, we're going live. Don't tune in alone because we're not Netflix. We are the new creation. We are the new creation that God is forming into his chosen people. All right, there's a mini sermon before we get to the major sermon. Uh, we are in a series, we kicked it off last week, short three-week mini-series that we're calling The Fog, uh, The Temptations of Jesus. And the reasons for that are simple, because all of us, when we describe what it feels like to be living in 2020, what this year feels like, we say it feels like we're in a fog. I certainly have. And what we mean by that is there's this intense sense of disorientation. We can't see the path in front of us. We can't see the path behind us, to the right or the left. There's this intense uh, uh, sense of dislocation. We don't know where we are. We can't get our bearings. And so what do we do? We have to look inward. We look inward, and, and when we do that, things start emerging. Perhaps demons start emerging. Perhaps Satan starts tempting us with certain things. And Jesus had his own fog season. Like we said last week, uh, it was in the biblical tradition, it's called a desert season where God leads his people to the desert to test them, to basically put them in a state of disorientation so that what he's said to them, his love, his comfort, his truth, has a chance to be refined and purified. And the temptations that Jesus, before he began his ministry, that Jesus experienced in the desert, are, I dare say are the same ones we're experiencing in this season as well. So we're looking at those. Um, we're on temptation two this week. So before we jump into it, let's pray together to prepare our hearts, and then we'll jump into the text. So pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't know who's tuning in. I don't know what their thoughts of you. I don't know what their experiences with you or, or maybe with Christians. But God, I pray that in this moment that you would declutter things that need to be decluttered, that you would silence voices that need to be silenced, that, that put up defenses from you, and that they, in their hearts, would be open, be truly open to having their worldviews challenged, to having their beliefs about you challenged, confronted, provoked. Lord, I, I think what is so terrifying about this series and about these, these seasons is because Satan is unmasked. We can see the lies popping up. We can see how we are clearly being presented with things that are less than good, less than what you have for us. And so God, I don't know where people are coming from, but I would ask right now in your name, Jesus, that was crucified and was resurrected in the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would sense right now that you are speaking to them, that they are not tuning in on purpose, that they are not being entertained, that they are encountering the God who made them, who has been walking beside them since the day they were born and will continue to walk alongside them until the day they leave this earth. That there is a purpose on their life, that they're not accidents, and this season isn't an accident. It's unfortunate, but it's not an accident. You are with them and you are beckoning them to leave the things behind that are actually holding them back from you, keeping them uh, enslaved and held captive, 
and to walk with you in a free relationship. So Lord, would you just communicate that to them today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you feel it, guys, but I am definitely sensing something right now. I've come out of the gates. All right, I've come out of the gates. (laughs) So let's see what the rest of this message has. Uh, Let's jump in. We are looking in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, and this is the second temptation of Satan to Jesus in the desert. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan has come to him, and he's starting to suggest certain things, certain actions. And here's what we read for the second one. Then the devil took him to the holy city. That's Jerusalem. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I grew up in the church. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But if you did, you may have seen this poster. Um, Picture this. There's this guy. Camera angle is low, looking up, panning up. He's got that 1990s like haircut where the hair is gelled straight out. You know what I'm talking about. I may or may not have a couple of photos from sixth grade with that hairstyle. But uh, he is uh, wearing really cool, colorful clothes. And he is hanging off the side of a mountain, of a rock face. He's climbing it. No ropes, mind you. No ropes. And right beneath him in big, like, jagged font that you can picture in your mind, as I say, like 1990s jagged font. It says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that was in our our, uh, Sunday school classrooms all the time. The implication of this is pretty clear, that if you have God on your side, and if you show the requisite faith, you can climb rocks without ropes. That is where your discipleship is taking you. Now, there's some serious problems with that, which we're going to discuss. But uh, the idea, the sinister side of this faith, which is very much an American version of it, and as we'll talk later, is one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. But the sinister side of this is that the issue with your life is actually not God. The issue with your life is you. You don't have big enough faith. If you had big enough faith, you could climb rocks without ropes. That's Philippians 4.13 faith, according to to this poster. And then you start to like play it out in certain aspects of your lives. If, If you're sick, the issue, the reason why you're sick is not God. It's because you lack the requisite faith to step into it. If you don't have sufficient means, if your life is out of sorts, that terrible thing that happened to you, that terrible thing or things that you keep doing that you can't stop doing, the, the, the reason that society is broken, according to this poster, it's not because God is, is to blame, it's because you don't have faith, right? On your faith, these things can change. And if they're not, it's because you lack the appropriate faith. If you would but climb that rock without ropes, you would see God come through. If you would but throw yourself off the temple, you would see that he would command his angels concerning you 
so that you would not strike your foot against the stone. See, Satan's first test of Jesus, his first temptation, was a little too rebellious, a little too overt. So he tries a different tactic in temptation too. He goes a little more subtle. He actually uses God's own voice. Because when, when he says, throw yourself off, he will command his angels concerning you so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. That's actually from a psalm, Psalm 91. This beautiful psalm, this beautiful promise of God's protection for those who trust him, for those who abide in his presence. And I actually want to read a, a sizable portion of it from the message translation because it's such a beautiful promise of protection for those who trust God. This is what, this is what it says in Psalm 91. Say this. God, you're my refuge. I trust in you and I'm safe. That's right. He rescues you from hidden traps. He, he shields you from deadly hazards. His huge outstretched arms protect you. Under them, you're perfectly safe. His arms fend off all harm. Fear nothing. Not wild wolves in the night, not flying arrows in the day, not disease that prowls through the darkness, not disaster that erupts at high noon. Even though others succumb all around, drop like flies right and left, no harm will even graze you. You'll stand untouched. Watch it all from a distance. Watch the wicked turn into corpses. Yes, because God's your refuge. The high God's your very home. Evil can't get close to you. Harm can't get through the door. He ordered his angels to guard you wherever you go. If you stumble, they'll catch you. Their job is to keep you from falling. A beautiful psalm, but notice the eerie parallels in our own season. For those who trust in him, no disease, no disaster will befall us. Even as we see people fall on the right and the left, it won't come near us. To which we wonder, well, what about that job I lost, God? What, what happened there? I trusted in you, I prayed for it. And I lost the job. What about that friend who died? Or, or even not a friend. What about the 170,000 people in America who have perished? I, I don't understand. How has harm befallen them? What about that financial setback? I trusted in you. I stepped out in faith. Why? I, I jumped on the rock and I fell. What happened? What about societal brokenness that, that does not protect those who trust in you? Again and again and again. What about those examples? See, Satan takes Jesus to the temple. And the temple is the center and the core. It is the heart of God's presence. He takes Jesus to the temple where God promised for those who abide in him, they will not experience harm. They will be saved and delivered. And yet, says Jesus, here's you, the son of God. And you're not safe and secure. You're not saved and delivered. Where is your God? Where is your faith? What happened, Jesus? Does, does he not love you enough? Do you not have faith in him enough? What, what happened, person, child? Does God not love you? Do you is your faith not strong enough? I, I, I thought you were his child. I thought you were his son, his daughter. What, what went wrong? See, the temptation in this moment is for Jesus to doubt what God had promised him, that he would protect him from harm, to doubt that and to act on his doubts 
to force God to prove himself. That's the temptation. To which Jesus answers, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now you're sitting there and you're like, wait, doesn't God tell us to test him? Doesn't he command us to take steps of faith and test if he won't come through? Why is this one any different? Like, I mean, maybe you know the famous example in Malachi where uh, the prophet Malachi, God speaks to the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel and he says, is my arm too short? Bring in the first fruits. Essentially he said, for us it would be the modern day notion of of bringing our our tithes, the first of our finances to God, uh, to the local church and be like, bring that in. And watch if I don't open up the heavens and and pour out blessings so that you always have enough. Test me, says God in Malachi. You're like, "Isn't, isn't this the same? And it's not. There's a huge difference between the testing of Malachi and the testing that Satan is tempting Jesus with if he threw himself off the temple. And picture it like this. Let's say you're in a relationship, right? And, and you know, I'm in the relationship with, with Anna, and she says she loves me. She says she loves me, and I know she loves me. She loves me. But what if she doesn't love me? Huh. Like, what if things go dry in a certain way, and I'm not so sure she loves me? And so I decide to test her. I decide to hire an actor to flirt with her and to see how she responds, to see if she gives in to that or if she actually responds with love for me. What's the issue there? The issue is at the heart of that test, of me testing Anna, was not because I trust her. It's because I distrust her. The heart of me doing that that test, hiring that actor, being really secretive about it, was not because I trust Anna's love. I actually am doubting Anna's love. And so out of that doubt, out of that distrust, I want to test her and see what she does. In Malachi, God told us to act. He tells us, take this step of faith, test me. Therefore, we can take that step. But in this situation, God didn't tell Jesus to jump. Satan told Jesus to jump and test God. It would not be out of trust or faith that Jesus would test God. It would actually be out of distrust and doubt that he would test him. The temptation is for Jesus to stop trusting God's promises and to act in a way that forces God to prove he loves him according to Jesus' standards, not according to God's own promised or stated ones. Because if you notice in the psalm, it says, he will command his angels concerning you. If you stumble, they will protect you. It did not say he will order his angels concerning you. If you jump, they will protect you. Therein lies the difference. Now, what are some modern-day parallels? Well, I kind of mentioned this last week. I have a lot of friends right now who are leaving the faith or just walking away uh, from God. And, and, and maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're, like, really doubting right now. And, uh, or, or maybe you're sort of tuning in again, but you're not so sure, but you got issues with God. And see if this sounds familiar. With my friends, when I talk to them, I'm like, all right, what's going on? 
and they tell me their issues with God. They tell me that why they no longer believe him or trust him. Ultimately, it can be reduced to one thing, usually, one thing. You know what it is? God failed me. And what they mean is, I tested him, and he did not come through as I expected him to come through. I jumped, and he did not catch me. We threw ourselves off the temple, and no angels protected us from harm. I lost a job. If God really loved me, because I prayed for this job, I trusted him with this job, and then I lost it. If he really loved me, why didn't he catch me? I've lost loved ones. I, I believe that God would heal them. If he really loved us, if he was really as powerful as he says he is, why? Why did he not catch them? My body is sick. We've been praying. I've been trusting. Why has the suffering not gone away? Society still without justice. The church is judgmental and self-righteous. If God really loved us, why? why? We've thrown ourselves off the temple. Why will he not catch us? See, in all these cases, they're drawing the line. They're drawing the line. They are defining how far is too far in suffering. They're not walking in faith, trusting that God will deliver. They're actually out of their doubt and distrust. And maybe this is you, out of your doubt and distrust, you're drawing the line and saying, if God doesn't do it here, then he's not who I thought he was. And here's what I want you to see. Temptation one said, if you're the son of God, tell these, bread, tell these stones to become bread. You have a hunger. If you're God's child, you shouldn't have a hunger. Feed yourself. To which Jesus said, we do not live on bread alone. We live on the one who makes the bread, who infuses the bread with life. From his word, we are satisfied. Temptation one says, I am hungry. If God loved me, he'd give me a spouse. I'm hungry for a spouse. But what you're saying is what you need to be satisfied in life is not God, the maker of humans, the maker of human relationships, the maker of intimacy, but a very specific narrow human relationship, a spouse, which means the spouse is your real God. In temptation one, you said, if God really loved me, he'd take care of my finances, which means that what you need to be satisfied is not God, the provider who has all things in his hands, but a very specific, narrow uh, financial situation according to your standards, which means that is your God. And temptation too is the exact same logic, just it's inverse. If God really loved you, he'd give you bread, right? That was what Satan said. So feed yourself. Temptation two says, if God really loved you, he'd protect you from the suffering. You're suffering. Maybe he doesn't love you. Temptation one is feed yourself. Temptation two is to define how much starvation is too much and therefore a sign that God doesn't love us. But in both cases, in both cases, it's removing from Jesus a heart that trusts God, that trusts his promises, that even though we cannot see, even though it doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust how he's behaved in the past. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to substitute love for control. 
I'm going to trust him. In both cases, it's removing that heart who trusts that God will provide manna from heaven and will protect us from suffering and death and replacing it with something else. And that something else has now become our God. It's now broken our relationship with him. If we test him, if we draw the line there and say, God, if you don't protect me from this thing, then you don't really love me. Our relationship, or say, if you don't protect me from this thing, then our relationship is over. We're going to miss so much, guys. And there are such extreme perils to that position. One, I would challenge you to see if a life without suffering or a life without certain aspects actually births in you the type of satisfaction and joy and peace that you think it does. But secondly, imagine this. Let's go back to the couple example. Imagine a couple who has like been super entitled and, and privileged from the start. They've never had an issue with finances. They've never been in a, a tough situation. They've never experienced struggle, right? It's just been easy from the start. And then one day something happens, financial setback, uh, a lost loved one, one of them lies or hurts the other. And what do they feel? They feel like their entire world is crumbling. I mean, you probably have similar experiences when you know you get in a new relationship and the first fight you have, that first fight is the worst. You feel like everything, the world is crumbling down, right? They're so soft. They're so soft. They, they actually don't have within them the resources of the reserves. Their love is not strong enough to take on a brutal world. But now imagine another couple. And this other couple, they have been through the ringer. They have experienced all sorts of tragedies, all sorts of setbacks. They have experienced all sorts of pain from terrible decisions they've made toward each other. They have hurt each other. But through it all, they have always reconciled. They have always spoken truth. They have always surrendered their hearts. They've, they've never backed away. They've always pushed into one another. And imagine from that couple emerging out of that crucible many years later, looking at each other and saying, I choose you. I love you. That is a love with teeth. <laughs> that is a love that is so strong that literally nothing can break it because nothing has broken it. It's faced everything and not been defeated by it. Friends, consider the last lines from Psalm 91. This is what it says, the, the one that Satan qu quoted to Jesus. If you'll hold on to me for dear life, says God, I'll get you out of any trouble. I'll give you the best of care if you'll only get to know and trust me. Call me and I'll answer. Be at your side in bad times. I'll rescue you, then throw you a party. I'll give you a long life, give you a long drink of salvation. See that the core of temptation too 
if Jesus were to jump off the temple and force God's hand to protect him, then what he's doing is acting not out of trust in his relationship with God. He's actually acting out of distrust. He's acting out of his doubt. And he's seizing control. He's seizing the power in the relationship saying, if you really want to be with me, then this is the line. This is, this is the place right here that if you don't protect me here, then this is over. Temptation two is to exchange your trust for distrust. To do something reckless, to force God's hand. Because look at how much you're suffering. Look at how much the world is suffering. And if you do, guys, if you do, you will miss the depths and the power of the love of God that he has revealed to us. Because in this psalm, he says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to give you a long drink of salvation to which we ask, where does this rescue and salvation come from? In the first temptation, remember what Jesus said is, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word. And it's a reference to Israel thought they were going to starve. And so they're thinking, let's just go back to Egypt. What God did instead was totally outside of their imagination. He rained bread from heaven. They had no idea that was going to happen. He saved them in a way that they they never imagined they'd be saved that way. And likewise, in temptation too, when we wonder how much, how are you going to save us from this suffering, God? How are you going to save us from this deep, pain. What is your rescue and salvation going to look like? We imagine it's eliminating the suffering, putting us in a situation that we don't have to feel pain anymore. And it's actually the opposite. Because the couple who has faced everything the world could throw at them and still not been defeated by it, that is a couple that has a power of love that is literally unbreakable. It is unbreakable. Except death. Death defeats the relationship. But when we read that God in the person of Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross, that on the cross he absorbs, he takes on the brokenness of the entire world, all the suffering of the world, that God in the flesh receives that sin, that suffering, dies, And then three days later, God raises Jesus back from the dead in a new and transformed body, the firstborn of the new creation. We know now, we know God has proven it, that there is no amount of suffering, no amount of sin and brokenness and mistakes and shame and guilt, no amount of any of that and no amount of death that can break his love that he has for us that can sever the relationship because God in the person of Jesus has faced everything that this evil world can throw at him. He's swallowed it up and he's still not been defeated by it. When God says he's going to rescue us and save us from suffering. He doesn't mean we're going to have a relationship that never suffers. He means that no matter what we go through in this broken world, he's already there right beside us. We're not alone in those places. Therefore, we are richly comforted 
in those places. Therefore, I will trust him even when I don't see him because his son is on a cross voluntarily. A God who would choose that, the creator and master who would choose that to join me in the most abject, horrible situation because he loves me. That is a love that cannot be destroyed. If death couldn't destroy it, then nothing else can. Nothing else can. If God is with us even there, where can any harm befall us? Not even death is strong enough. Jump, Satan says, to which Jesus responds. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We might say, he's already passed the test. (laughs) He's already passed the test of sin suffering, and death. And since he's passed the test, we are free, entirely free to continue to choose to trust him. No matter what, no matter the suffering, no matter the injustice, no matter even the death, because none of those things are strong enough to sever our relationship, which is the secret to Christianity. It's not that bad things don't happen to us, actually quite the opposite. It's that when the suffering comes, and it will, when the suffering comes, we actually know a peace that surpasses any worldly understanding. We know a joy that has nothing to do with our circumstances because we have a God who is with us in all of those places. Which brings us back to Philippians 4.13. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we Americans have taken that verse to mean if I just have the right faith, if I just have the faith that jumps on a rock face, I can do anything. If I just have the faith that jumps off the temple, he will prove himself. Therefore, if we're experiencing suffering or if we're experiencing pain or trials, then we don't have the right faith. That in fact, our relationships should should be this peachy, effortless power full of, you know, wonderful days, happy days, and free hanging rock climbs. But this passage actually comes at the end of the letter to the Philippians, at the end of Paul's life. Paul is very old. He's in prison at the time that he's writing this. He's awaiting his death. He's experienced tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, tremendous injustice from people. He's spent his entire life telling people the simple message that their God loves them and will continue to love them after death, that they won't disappear. They'll actually live in love with him forever, and they can know that now. He spent his life telling people that, and he's experienced nothing but suffering in his life. And he's summing it all up in Philippians, and this is what we read from Paul, the context of that passage. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul saying, I don't need to make my own bread. He has richly fed me with his friendship. I don't need to despair when suffering comes or when curveballs come in life or, or when life doesn't live up to my expectations. I don't need to despair in any of those places because he has joined me in every one of those places and I am richly comforted. Whether I live or die, whether I eat or go hungry, whether I'm clothed or I'm naked, no matter what I experience in this life, I can face it all. I can do all things through him who is with me. You see, the power of this relationship, the true power of this test is not to go and do something reckless and have God prove himself. It's actually the opposite. It's to say, I can face anything the world throws at me and it will not destroy my hope and my joy and my peace and the salvation of God. I can do anything through him who has joined me in the worst places of this world, who has joined my heart in the darkest nights. He's there. And because he's there, I know I will live with him forever. Satan might be saying to you, if you're God's son, if you're God's daughter, why are you suffering? That's not what parents want for their children. Draw the line in the sand, tell him to fix this or you're out. To which say right back, it has been written. I've read the page. I've seen the, the pictures. He does love me. And not because he protects me from suffering, but because he's right there beside me in it. He's gone to the cross. He, the perfect one, died unjustly on the cross. He didn't deserve to die, but he chose it so that he could be with me, so God could be with me. And every amount of suffering and injustice that this world could throw at him, that this world does throw at me. I don't need to be afraid of this pain because I have the love of God in the middle of it. And yes, I still have questions. And yes, there are some days that I really want to quit. I really need an answer. But if he's willing to die, if God, the life incarnate is willing to be snuffed out in a moment so as to swallow it up and be resurrected, then I can trust that he will provide a joy and a peace and an endurance in these worst situations. And according to Paul, he does. And though I'm still young in my faith, I've seen a lot. And I promise you, the joy of knowing in your worst days that God's love is with you when you think you don't deserve it, when you think the world doesn't deserve it, when there's so much you don't understand, when God says, and yet I'm here with you. 
and you will never be removed from my hand. That is a joy that is incomparable. That is a love and a relationship with teeth. And imagine when you finally transition off this planet into the arms of glory, enter into the next realm and see Jesus. And you don't have to say it, usually your eyes will connect and lock and your love, your trust will finally be made fully manifest in a way that we just hear echoes of it. The faintest echoes, the song will become completely pure on that moment. That my friends, that is true freedom. That is a true relationship. That is true love. And that is what I would wish for each one of you. So let's pray and then we're gonna sing a song of response and then we'll come back and take communion together. So pray with me. Lord, I don't know where everyone's trust is right now, but I pray right now. I, I have no doubt that there's probably things coming to mind in everyone's heart. Aspects of their lives, memories, current realities, things where they're suffering, whether it's things that have happened to them or decisions they've made or continue to make. There's aspects of suffering or shame or guilt and they, they're sort of holding them up to you. And that's their, their metaphorical jumping off the temple. They're saying, why is this still here? If, if you don't catch me here, then you're not really God. Then you don't really love me. Lord, I pray that they would bring those things to you, not jump, but instead bring them to you and say, okay, if you're the God that this, this guy is describing, then would you love me in this thing? Would you meet me in this thing? Meet me in my shame, meet me in my guilt. Reveal to me this peace that surpasses understanding that I don't have to know where the world is headed. I don't have to know where my life is headed because I know no matter what you are with me. Would you do that right now, Holy Spirit? Do that right now in them. Reveal to them the depths of your love for them. Break them with your love. Break down every barrier, every wall. Say no to that temptation. Say, no matter what, Jesus, whether I live or die, whether you answer or don't, I will still always trust you. I will choose you. You are my deepest love. Say that. And Jesus, I pray, send your spirit to meet with them. Send your spirit to meet with them. God, we need you in this season of the fog. There is a lot of suffering and we have lots of questions, but will we not turn those questions away from you? Would we turn them towards you? Would we bring our suffering to you? And would you meet us as you met Paul? Would we be able to say through these experiences, I can do everything. I can face everything through my God who strengthens me with his love. And when the world sees that, when they see a people in relationship with God who trust him so much that they're not even afraid of suffering and death, they go to it willingly because God is with them in those places, then that will be a witness. That will be a sign 
of how powerful this love and this grace and this gospel is. So Lord, we praise you, we thank you. Meet us today. We're walking away from the edge. We trust you even when we can't see. It's in your name, amen. Let's sing a song.